Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Minisports. Anything and everything for the classic Mini since 1967. 30 years ago, Piers Dog painted my crash helmet. Back then, choices were pretty limited, and talented artists like Piers just did it for a drink down the pub or a back tyre for a motocross bike or, or whatever. However, since then, he's turned it into a long, enduring and profitable business. Over 6,000 crash helmets painted for all kinds of people, including touring car champions, Petter Solberg, the World Rally champion, and Rio Ferdinand, the Manchester United football player. However, he's also one of the people behind the Fighter Ace project, which is an endeavour aimed at building a car with a Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, a supercharged Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, that's important, out of a Spitfire. There are lots of aero engine cars in the world, but as Piers will tell you, there are very few with a genuine Spitfire engine. My guest this week on Speed Shop, Piers Dowell. So Piers, it's, it, this is strange in some ways because we're going to talk about um, aero engine cars, which is a thing that I, you and a lot of other people have been fascinated with for a long time. Yeah. But we know each other from a completely different field of endeavour, which is allied to the automotive arts. And in your case, it truly is an automotive art, because I think you once, if you'll pardon the expression, painted my crash helmet. God, many years ago. Wasn't it? Wasn't yeah, it? I mean, I, I'm 5,000, 6,000 crash helmets in now. So wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah, we've lost count. That's for sure. Piers, how did you get started in it? I mean, I... You know, how is, do you do your own, and then other people say, "Oh, that's nice." Who did that? And you go, oh, "I did," and they ask you to yeah. do theirs. Is well, it like no, that? actually, it was a way of tying the two things I was interested in at the time, and I'm still interested in, uh, which was uh, being artistic, artistic, creative, and motorcycles, and specifically motocross at the time. Because if you look at the, the sort of US um, at the time, we were sort of following the motocross and the supercross from over there, and all this Troy Lee stuff was coming over, and we all thought, sort of, wow, you know. Um, whereas sort of uh, paint designs on helmets over here were just a couple of straight lines and a sponsor logo, you know, probably a sticker. Um, and we sort of elaborated on it from there, really. And then, the, you know, it was at the first, it was, you know, cash to go down the coast jet skiing. And then it was, um, you know, it paid for, for, for motorcycle parts or swapsies, you know, um, keep the tax man out of it, statute of limitations and all that. Um, and then, you know, it took a while to actually take it seriously, you know. Well, how do you do it? Because, I mean, I always remember, I'm, I don't mean, I'm not saying that, that I have no idea how someone reproduces an image using paints. What I mean is, I was always told, and many of us were always told, you should never, ever, ever paint your crash helmet, because then that... Yeah, well, I mean, it, that's just a sort of 50 quid uh, polycarbonate crash helmet, which they don't make anymore anyway. So, you know, obviously when you're talking now, I mean, you're talking top-of-the-range steelers, five-and-a-half grand carbon fibre thing. So, yeah, it, it's not an issue. It's composite. It's 
perfectly capable of taking paint. But you, you still have to be careful, obviously, not to uh, get it onto the polystyrene liner inside. That's the big issue. What's changed about that business in the last... It's got to be, Piers, it's got to be 30 years since you painted that helmet for me. Yeah, I've sure. been painting crash helmets since 1991, and I'm still painting crash helmets on occasion. Um, yeah, what's changed? Computers uh, have allowed us to do things that weren't possible or very difficult to do uh, 20, 30 years ago. We used to hand-cut masks for lettering on a, on a photocopy of the lettering the right size and then hand-cut the mask out. You could use it a couple of times and it'd be scrap. Now you press a button, you can repeat it 50 times, you know. Um, and then also the way we scribe the designs out um, and construct a mask set has changed and it's actually raised the quality and improved the quality. So where was your industry? I mean, it's a very niche industry, but where was your industry located in the world? I'm going to say America, and I'm going to say the UK, and I can't think of anywhere else where there'd be a group, yeah, a group been, of individuals. Still, uh, yeah, in Tembury Wells in Worcestershire. Yeah, but I, I'm trying to think where else in the world, in the States, obviously, yes, but where else in the world, and here in the UK, because, you know, you're not the only helmet painter known to me, I know sort of four or five of you. No, I was a sort of first generation of helmet painters, right. a, few, a few of us dotted around, and what you tend to see is a few guys come and go, um, they tend to get sort of five years, get really busy and burn out, and that, you know, they either, you know, tough it through that period and, you know, work through the problems and improve their businesses, or fail. Um, and I got to the point, well past that, I got to the point where I couldn't really, I wasn't qualified to do anything else, so I better keep going. How difficult is it to reproduce an image on a three-dimensional surface as opposed to painting on a flat canvas? Did you start painting on a flat canvas? Was that I did, I did yeah. a few, um, but um, it, it, um, it actually, crash helmets have been a... <laughs> a great learning curve because the reason I guess uh, Lewis and I are as good as we are at airbrushing which is sort of almost slightly removed actually fine art airbrushing and photorealism is almost slightly removed from actual crash helmet painting the reason we are as good as we are at what we do is because we cut our teeth on crash helmets so that's why um, you know we're good enough to do work for the likes of um, people like Rolls Royce and Bentley now so um, you know it's taken a long time to get there but uh, keep on jogging and what about the paint itself? How has that changed, or has it changed? I would imagine no, it has. It hasn't. Yeah, no. I mean, obviously the automotive industry has gone to water-based, but we're niche, uh, very niche, and we have a very low VOC relative to a car plant. So we don't really stick our head above the parapet, really, on that one. So uh, we can still, I'm still using the same materials with the same part codes as I always have, and one of the things I say to the guys who work for me is don't change anything in a paint shop. If you know everything works together, leave it alone. Do people come to you and ask you to sort of train them up as apprentices? I would imagine they do. They f yeah, they we think do a little bit of tuition uh, when it's quiet, and I do a training course for airbrushing and helmet painting, actually, down on the south coast. We've got one coming up in November um, at the airbrush company. It's great fun. It's, it, it reminds you of how much you've learned. Um, it's great to pass on your knowledge, you know, in an environment where nobody's really going to go into business against you, you know, I'm not sort of that small-minded about it. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, obviously I do get people want to come here and work for me with a view that they're going to bugger off, but, yeah, that, that, that's, not a, that's too disruptive in the working environment, so that doesn't really happen. Mm. What's the most difficult job you've ever been asked to do? I mean, I remember the, you know, I, things got very complicated very quickly. It's like you, you say, 
Um, back in the day, the designs on crash helmets were very distinctive but very graphic and very plain because, of course, the point was you had to be able to identify a rider at speed. So like a jockey's silks, the crash helmet would identify the rider. And Phil Reed, one of the greatest motorcycle racers these islands have ever produced, has just passed. And I was always a huge fan of that design, which... Until yeah, I spoke, I until mean, I spoke it, it, to him, it's actually, some more of a backlash now. In that, you know, as I grow sort of older and allegedly more mature, and some of my clients are, they're, they're sort of getting away from you know trying to get everything on a crash helmet. You know, we're not fifteen-year-old kids doing go-karting anymore. So, you know, in short, less is more, and, and uh, that suits me fine. I remember that design that Valentino Rossi had on his helmet, where from above, it was his face. Sort of screaming, or, or yeah, I think or that was a water slide. Actually, I don't think that was airbrushed on. Right. So, what I was going to then say was, I don't think that was painted. You'll tell me how that was done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was a water slide. I don't know for sure, but I have. Piers, what is a water slide? None of none of us know what it is. What is it? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's either that or it's airbrushed. Or I suppose it could be stretched vinyl. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I would imagine. It, it was um, it was printed in some way. So that's a photographic image, and how how is that then attached to a crash helmet? How does that work? Uh, well, obviously with a compound curvature, it is difficult. So yeah. I mean, we've done original uh, designs for manufacturers like the Dennis the Menace one and the Spider Man that went out sort of right. twenty years ago. Now, those were all ours. We did the master copies for those. Um, the um, you've got to break it down so it will fit. On, you know, it'll crease in such a way there's not an issue uh, on a, a, a compound curvature. So, yeah, that's all uh, the nature of the beast, and it's quite difficult, actually. But uh, there is a certain amount of give, I understand, with, um, you know, vinyl wraps that are sort of available today. They will obviously stretch to a certain amount of compound curvature. And, and did that really kill off the market for painted helmets was that no no we're as busy as ever i think that what killed it off um in terms of motorcycling was the fact that there were so many different helmets available um off the shelf with graphics um so therefore that most of the crash helmets we paint now for four-wheeled motorsport um where 99 percent of the helmets sold are plain white so um, if anybody's going to look even remotely professional they've got to have some kind of livery applied to it plus the fact the msa in the uk banned any wraps uh, you know, applied to crash helmets because you can cover up the damage, which, to be honest, if you were, uh, you know, in a moral painter with no, uh, no no values, you could you could easily fill it, prime it, and fix it up anyway. But, um, you know, fortunately, painting helmets is still a thing. Um, and, and funnily enough, I read an article many years ago, well, a few years ago, about uh, the onset of AI in the workplace um, by the president of the, or the, CEO of Rolls-Royce Aero Engines, and he said that, um, you know, if you're a, a, a clerk, in you know, an accountant or a solicitor or something, you need to worry because your job is going to be taken by AI in the next sort of decade. And the safest jobs are those that require a high level of dexterity. And I thought, phew, helmet painting's not so bad after all. <laughs> you know, nobody's, nobody's going to replace us as long as you, there are helmets to paint. You know, we, they'll be painted by hand, I guess. What's the most difficult design you've been asked to do? And have there been any, have there been any that have been, that have proved to be impossible? Have you tried and 
failed to because uh, it's just been failed on one we sometimes we've steered clients away from something simply from a budget point of view uh, there's very little that isn't possible but it, it, it often comes down to budget you know the honeymoon period is over we, we have to make a living out of this so you know you can't afford to spend two weeks on something for the love of it so you know often uh, i found i'm afraid over the years anyone with all the imagination in the world usually hasn't got two pennies to rub together and anyone that uh, has got all the money in the world doesn't have any imagination. Isn't that the truth? Mm. <laughs> what's your favourite out of all the ones that you... So you say you've done, what, 6,000 or so? What's your favourite out of all the ones that you've done? Yeah, say say uh, the one you did for I, me. I, Go I on. <laughs> what's my favourite, this, that and the other, by my children? I don't have favourites. You know, I've got ones that, are, that sort of um, I'm proud of because of, you know, who, who wore them or where they ended up or... Um, you know, there may be a technical achievement with them, or um, you know, simply my own, my own crash helmets. I like the design, so yeah, I don't really have a favourite. Can you name drop? Can you tell us who you've actually worked for, or, or with some I of get, them? I do get asked this a lot, and because I've been at it so long, and I'm, I think I'm going a bit doolally, I've pretty much forgotten. But I mean, we, we've done you know pretty much most of the British touring car grid at one time or another. People like Petter Solberg, and we've done some sort of top end celebrities. We've, we've we had a a uh, bike we painted that was bought by Jean Tot. Um, you know, we had a, we did another bike we did was um, sold at the Beckham charity, too, and bought by Rio Ferdinand. And you know, we, we've we've had some uh, moments of stardom, I suppose. You know, but uh, tell you the truth, I've forgotten most of them. Are people still painting motorcycles and scooters with complicated artwork, or is that? Have I, has that gone? I don't... No, it is still a thing, but I mean, I got to the stage with the murals is that we looked at the sort of work we were producing relative to everybody else, and I thought, well, there's no way we could discount this just to get the work in. So you either sort of charge... You know, because it's soul-destroying to discount your work once you're sort of proud and happy with the way it goes out. You, you can't give it away, and I'd rather not do it or do it free for a friend than, than do it at a discount price for a client. So... That's why the sort of rolls and the Bentley work that, that comes in on occasion is really gratefully received because it's for people that obviously can afford what we can do uh, as well as we can do it. All right, so is that just straightforward paintwork, like, you know, British Racing Green or whatever, no no murals, no pinstriping, no, no, no design, it's just paint? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I, yeah. thought, I thought they'd be quite separate. I thought the guys... Like I have, you know, I know people that do that sort of thing, and, and they would never, they would never stray into your world. So it's like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I had to learn to be a painter. I was quite a good artist, uh, or good, good copier, <laughs> so I tell my kids, um, good at copying. But um, yeah, I had to learn how to paint, uh, spray paint. I'd never worked in a paint shop, but you know, once you, uh, you finally get round to reading the technical manual, most of it's in there, and if you do as you're told, you should get a half decent result. Is it is it very regulated these days? That um, the well, I'm sure at the top end, you know, if you're working in a big car plant, it is. But you know, as I say, we, we're under the radar here, and that suits me fine. Thank you very much. No, I said that. You know, we're environmentally conscious. This place is entirely solar powered, and um, all the, the booths are filtered in and out, so you know, yeah. you're not chucking muck out into the atmosphere. Well, I was just going to yeah. say that I I knew a very talented uh, motorcycle painter, and they had to pack it in because for health reasons, but. 
people, other people told me, they said, oh, he was pretty, like, he was very talented, but he was pretty lackadaisical when it came to... Yeah, you've got to be careful. I mean... You've you got know, to. You've still got isocyanates in the, in the activators and stuff, so, yeah, not, 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 not great if, you, if you're breathing it. So, yeah, we've got extraction, obviously, throughout the buildings. It's, you know, it's a proper purpose-built building we've got here now. Um, and, obviously, we wear, um, wear masks when we should be wearing masks. How much does it cost, Piers? How much does a crash helmet cost to be painted these days? Oh, well, that'll vary a lot. Um, you know, you can, I mean, we find a floor limit about four hundred pounds, but I mean, you know, some of these designs we end up doing for these sort of ten-year-old kids karting, where they want everything on it and chrome and jewels encrusted on it. You sort of two, two and a half thousand pounds for a paint job, you know, which is to me insane. But you know, give them what they want. Jewels. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They yeah, they, um, they get a vajazzle, a hajazzle, do they? These helmets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a strange one, and but um, yeah, what are those uh, Sparovsky diamonds? Or I probably murdered that, but yeah, the the these the sort of fake diamonds you can stick all over them. Yeah, whatever. Not not my bag personally, <laughs> but. Um, Customers always right. It's funny when I see when I look at the. I recently bought the first new crash helmet I bought in a long time because back in the day, Arai used to give me crash helmets. I haven't asked them for one recently, but I had so many that you know, I just would pick one up and put it on, and then I thought I was putting this helmet on, and it was the Phil Reed R.I.P. Phil Reed R.I.P. The Prince of Speed. It was a Phil Reed Arai. Yeah. And I realised it was at least twelve years old, and I thought, "Ooh, this yeah, is." Yeah, I mean, they do they, they, they do life. There's no question of that. It's not a sales ploy. So, so I know, bought and, uh, I bought a new helmet. I was going to say I bought a new helmet, and in fact, I bought two new helmets. I bought a new open face and a new full face. And Piers, they're both carbon fibre. And did carbon fibre did that? Was that a bit of a kick in the watsits for you? Because People like me who bought, it a car, bought a carbon fibre helmet didn't want it to be painted. We wanted people to see that it was carbon fibre. Both my carbon fibre helmets are, as far as I'm aware, unpainted. They're just Yeah, by the time carbon fibre came out on bike helmets, it wasn't an issue for us because we probably paint about four crash helmets for motorcyclists a year, whereas we paint probably another 250 for car races. Wow. And a lot of them want carbon exposed in the design, which yeah. makes you work a bit arse about face, but it's all doable. Yeah. And what what did you say the the price of some of these car racing helmets is? Yeah, so the, obviously the, since the uh, Felipe Massa incident, you, they introduced a ballistic strip that fitted on the visor, and then a few years later they built it into the crash helmets. So you you, you um, ABP is the sort of acronym for it, and um, so if you order a, a Stilo Zero, which is their uh, Formula One spec helmet with the ABP strip in it, I think they're about five and a half thousand plus that. Wow! Because <laughs> yeah, I want to go Formula One racing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's how much things cost. Crikey! I was thinking five and a half hundred pounds for a carbon fibre helmet was, was. Yeah, well, that's, it's a different world, isn't it? It's a different world. If you can afford to go racing, for, you know, Ferraris or what have you, then um, yeah, as I say, it's probably not that bigger, bigger chunk. Well, of course, back in the day, um, the trend was. I'm sure you remember amongst motorcyclists, and I'm sure you painted a lot of them was to wear car racing helmets on a motorbike. Yeah, it was. The, 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 it's all right with a sit-up-and-beg-type bike because the visor port is cut lower. 
but a motorcycle helmet is cut so you can stick your backside in the air and your head down and therefore you need to look through the sort of top inch of the visor and if that's not there which it isn't in a car helmet you're not going to see where you're going i mean i used to have that issue when i used to wear simpsons on a road bike yeah (laughs) i was going to say that i got pulled up just outside knotsford on a stretch of dual carriageway i was on i wasn't on i was on a test bike i think it was a yamaha 750 and it was a kind of race rep type bike of the sort that they used to be able to sell in the uk not like now, where everything's either a retro or an adventure bike, but back mm. in the day, when they could sell race replicas, it was a FZ Fox I750 Yamaha or something like that. Yeah. And the police would stop me. And back then, I had a terrible habit of kind of cracking wise, as our North American friends would say, with policemen. Because you can in this country. People don't realise. It's like, you know, whenever I'm in abroad, particularly in Canada or the States, and I'm with my missus, if there's any interaction with a cop, she's always super sort of, you know, she's like, oh, don't say anything, don't don't look at them, all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, good evening, officer, how can I help you? <laughs> like this sort of thing, which seems to go down okay, because when they realise you're a Brit, they treat you differently. But yeah. this policeman pulled me over and he said, do you realise how, how fast you were going? He said, is this your motorcycle? I said, no, it's a test bike from Yamaha. And he went, oh, is it now? And I, you know, like that. And I went, yeah, it is. And he went, do you realise if I should go? And I said, I haven't got a clue. I can't see the clocks in this crash Because <laughs> it was a Simpson bandit, I think, or something like that. Mm. And and it wasn't just the one that's got a small aperture. Do you remember the one that had, like, a sunglasses aperture? So it was kind of cut over your nose as well. Yeah, yeah. And all I could just, see was oh, what was... All I could see was what was directly in front of me. I think the tendency with those helmets was for people to have them done like a sort of, like an alien or something like that. Yeah, so that, we did those till we were blue in the face. Yeah. <laughs> did you? I bet you thought a bloody hate HR Geiger. <laughs> wish you, no, I, wish I mean you. it was it was uh, quite easy stuff to do, and it, relative to the stuff we do now, which is very geometric and masking orientated, the freehand stuff is actually easier if you're competent with an airbrush. But um, yeah, that novelty did wore, wear off after a while. Because I was going to say, did did wraps not kind of. Wraps. Well, well, so as I say, they, they haven't really made an intrusion because it, it, they're quite difficult to do on a, a 3D, you know, compound curved surface like a helmet anyway. And uh, the MSA, which which uh, covers a lot of motorsport, domestic motorsport in the UK, is banned wrapped helmets anyway. So, not really an issue, fortunately. Damn handy for you. Yeah. So you were saying that you did it initially to subsidise your motorcycle in addiction what 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 variety what flavour of addiction was yours Piers? Well I mean I started racing sort of modern motocross in the 80s and had a little bit of success uh, but then sort of kind of lost fell out of love with it for a few well a couple of three years probably and then I, I started doing what I'm doing and I, I never really fully got back into it because I simply couldn't commit the time but then we sort of got into road racing and, and did a lot of lot of track days uh, which was again great because I used to swap paint jobs for, for track days um, and rear tyres which Hold on. you know from all the superbike teams we used to paint helmets for so Hold it was on. sort of fairly symbiotic thing and it, it didn't cost me very much Was this um, was this track days in the 90s when they were absolutely crazy? Sorry, say that again. Was this track days in the 90s? Like, Yeah, it was at the very early generation oh, of track God. days, really, when sort of No Limits started and a, a few of the other guys. The um, PB frenzy, um, remember that? Yeah, I mean, we used to, we used to have an absolute blast. Uh, it really worked. We got it at a you know, uh, 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 really good time, really. Piers, um, it was carnage. 
It was, <laughs> it was, it was absolute carnage out there. Well, it was, and it wasn't. You ride a few in the fast group, but the, the slow groups actually yeah. tended to be worse because the, the sort of people that novices, if you like, tend to fall off in very strange places, and the worst injuries were always in the slow groups. I remember somebody falling off of the straight in front of me once, and it was almost. When I asked him later on, he said it was something like he just he just wanted to shuffle in the in the saddle to see how much grip there was on the seat, and he fell off. <laughs> and it was yeah, like... I can believe it. Mate, you're not supposed to fall off on that bit. I mean, I, I fall off, right? It happens. But I, I seem to have a terrible habit, it is a terrible habit, of falling off on whatever the fastest corner is on any given circuit. Yeah, so well, I'm a member of the Craner Club, so I think I'm, you know, I've been so there 100 mile an hour in my head, so, Mate, you know... My accident at the Crater Curves, admittedly, in a car, was so destructive, <laughs> I ended the race meeting. The race meeting had to stop because I damaged the track barrel rolling down the Crater Curves. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a posse of outraged individuals who'd, who'd come to Donington Park to compete, wanting to kill me, and mm. I had one guy who, as a consequence of that race meeting being abandoned, won his series, right. was my best friend for life. When I went back to Donington the next time, which was a few months later, I pulled up at the gate, and I went, we were filming there, we, had, we, had, we were making, I'll tell you what we were doing, I've just remembered, we were making a, the history of scalectrics. And we were oh, using right. full-sized cars because we were saying, do you remember this? And so we were using full-sized cars to minis and TR7s and a, you know, and a race car and all that sort of stuff. So we had Donington Park for the day. And I pulled up at the gate and the security guy went, Nan, I went, Steve Berry. And he went, well, Mr. Wheatcroft wants to see you. <laughs> so that was like, <laughs> if people don't know, Tom Wheatcroft was the guy that owned yeah, Donington yeah, Park. At the time. And, and, and I thought, and he delivered the line completely. He'd actually remembered that day. He'd, he'd remembered what happened and he thought, oh, Steve Perry, I'll have a bit of fun with him. Because I thought, oh dear, because Tom Wheatcroft was generally thought of as a very affable gentleman. Mm. But he was dragged up by his bootstraps and sort of self-made man. And, and he was a big fellow as well. <laughs> so I was, a bit, I was a bit like, well, he said, no, I'm only joking. So... Probably time to move on now and talk about the second thing that you might be a guest on this show for. Because you could have just been on a guest as the guy who's painted 6,000 racers, crash helmets and done them for touring car champions and karting champions and Petter Solberg and Rio Ferdinand and all those people. Or you could be on the show because of your interest and your knowledge and your project surrounding aero-engined cars. When did it start, Piers? When did this obsession begin? Yeah, my grandmother had a lot to answer for, really. My grandmother was uh, German, actually, and was on the receiving end of the, the RAF's best efforts in northern Germany during the Second World War, but married my grandfather, who was a British serviceman. She came back uh, to the UK soon after when he was demobbed, and they ran uh, pubs and restaurants um, for all their working lives. And she was uh, very, very good at uh, telling stories, and it really fascinated my, you know, really fired my imagination about the history of the Second World War. And also my stepfather, um, I think, once I still got a photograph somewhere, took me to Hendon Air Museum as a child. And I remember seeing, you know, you've got to bear in mind that this time I was making uh, FX models till I was blue in the face, which probably did help with the helmet painting because it taught you dexterity. Uh, 
But because uh, of Spitfire, as a, as a ten-year-old boy, it was just the you know the, the business, you know, it, it, for all it stood for, and it still is. You know, Spitfire is is in a special place in 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 you know British uh, culture. And I saw a Merlin engine at Hendon Museum, and it's still there. Um, it's in a crate. It's unused, and it's, it's, it's in its storage crate, and you can sit and look at it. And I thought to myself, one day I want one of those. Um, and this is where, funnily enough, painting crash helmets for the great and the good seems to sort of afford you contacts that you'd never expected. So many years ago, um, probably 20 years ago, it was Alexandra Palace Motorcycle Show, and I'd got a helmet on the stand, which I'd painted for a friend and borrowed back. He said, do what you want on it. I'm into airplanes. So I thought, right, well, I'll paint an aircraft on the back, which was a, a very specific type of aircraft. It was a, a Grumman Bearcat, but it was a racing one that had raced at the Reno Air Races, which I was sort of really interested in at the time. And um, uh, he knew exactly what it was. And I, to know that, he must have known a lot about aircraft. So it sort of piqued my interest, and we got talking. And it turned out he was a, a volunteer at uh, one of the working museums at Duxford Air Museum. And I was sort of a little bit cheeky. I said, well, you know, do they ever get a Rolls-Royce Merlin? They don't want, you know. He said, oh, well, I'll, you know, I'll ask. And, of course, talk is cheap. You go home thinking, well, I'll never hear from him again. You know, cut a long story short, we became best of friends. And sure enough, he came up with a good. So he phoned up one day and said, they've got one here. They don't want it. Um, if you want it, come down before somebody else, you know, has it. Um, so that was that was my um, second aero engine, actually. The, the, the first one I bought was... Um, uh, off the internet, uh, and I've, I've just always had a fascination for them. Are there a lot of them about? I would imagine there are, because... This, yeah, I mean, obviously most of them were scrapped. Funny enough, we were racing motocross up at Shawbury the other day with my son, and that's where they scrapped most of them. I got pictures of fields at Shawbury full of air engines and aircraft after the war all being scrapped. Um, most of the engines I've got here, I've got five in total, most of the engines I've got here are post-war, so obviously piston engine uh, production did continue after the war for some time, you know, into the 1950s. Um, but uh, the Merlin that I've got here is 1944, it was out of a Mark 9 Spitfire. Um, so, uh, yeah, the Merlin stuff is obviously becoming reasonably rare now. Anything that is of an appropriate mark to... Um, you know, warbirds, Spitfires, Mustangs and stuff like that has really all been sort of snapped up. So I didn't realise how lucky I was until many years later that I had got a, a Merlin 66. you got to have a Merlin. Guy Martin, do say again. you've got to have a, a Merlin these days. Everyone's, everyone's got one. Guy Martin's got one. Jay Leno's got one. My pal Martin Overington, who's been on this show, has got one. A Merlin on a trailer that you can just fire up and sort of yeah funny enough i'd had a sort of part to play or a, a sort of a bit part to play in both of those really because that the engine that jay owns was originally built by a chap called graham white who's an expat lives in um florida worked for ibm but he's retired now and he uh, was one of the founder members of the aircraft engine historical society which used to come as a great magazine every quarter but it's now online um and uh, he put that Merlin on a trailer and restored it, and then he did a number of other engines, and he had a, a 4360, uh, which he sold me for principally some of $1, but I had to go and get it. Um, so that's how I got to know him, and I saw the engine there then. Uh, he then sold it to a friend of his who then sold it to Jay. Um, and a funny story with the, uh, the Guy Martin engine was that um, I had a bike featured in Performance Bikes by Supercharged FZR1000. And uh, Gary Inman, a, a fellow uh, 
uh, journo like yourself, um, phoned me back afterwards, after he saw the engine here, after he'd done the feature on the bike, and said, look, I've got somebody interested in your Merlin. Do you want to sell it? And I said, well, no, not really. I'm not sure what I wanted to do with it at the time, but I knew I didn't want to sell it. Uh, he said, I can't tell you who it's for. By the end of the conversation, he'd blabbed that it was for, 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 um, for Guy Martin. I said, well, look, the best thing you can do is speak to Peter Grieve. Uh, and to be honest with you, as soon as you get involved in Merlins, especially stuff that's not airworthy, uh, all roads tend to lead to Peter Grieve, who's a, just a great guy, so helpful and generous with his time. Um, and I think he sorted Guy's engine out for him. There's um, a plaque when you go into the Trafford Centre in Manchester, if you must go into the Trafford Centre, and I do try to avoid it because it is a giant soulless shopping mall which sucks the very joy from your human soul as you uh, as you enter. The only interesting thing I can find is the plaque that says that it was formerly the site of a factory in which many, many of those Merlin engines were actually made. So yeah, I think the Manchester plant was Ford-owned. I could be yeah, wrong. I was going to say um, it was Ford. So you've got to bear in mind that everyone imagines that Merlins were built in Derby. Not that many were built in Derby. Obviously, Derby was the research and, and development and the, the main plant. But uh, a lot of them were made in Crewe, which is obviously now the Bentley factory. And mine, uh, and most of them, uh, Merlins now, not Packard V1650s, uh, which is the American variant. Um, most of them were made at Hillington in Glasgow. Mine was made in Hillington in Glasgow in September 1944. So, what's the difference? <laughs> this is a this is a loaded question and something of a minefield. What's the difference between a a real Merlin, a, a semi Merlin, and a Meteor? What's the Okay, very very quickly then. So um, a meteor is the very early meteors did use um, redundant Berlin crankcases that weren't fit for uh, air worthy use. Um, but then they they modified the crankcase to something that isn't uh, possible to put a propeller on, so it does look different. But the power section is essentially the same: crankshafts the same, rods are the same, stroke on a bore and all that bore spacing. So you could interchange the heads, uh, blocks and all that sort of stuff with various different Merlin marks. Uh, but there is no supercharger. So the Meteor is a normally aspirated engine. And uh, it basically its contract was swapped for the um, Powerjet contract for the jet engines, uh, Whittle's jet engine, because Rover couldn't really cope with it. So it went to Rolls-Royce in exchange for the contract to make these Meteor engines. Um, and then a, a, a V1650 is basically a Packard-built Merlin, which some say, and I, I, some say, is actually a better engine. It was certainly easier to mass produce. It's something the Americans are very good at um, is mass production. But a, so, so, very roughly speaking, a Dash Seven uh, V1650, which I think is the right uh, right uh, Dash number for a um, um, Mustang, um, that would correspond roughly to a 60 series uh, Rolls-Royce Merlin. In other words, a two-stage supercharged and um, intercooled engine. So, thanks for that. <laughs> what was in that car that I drove on Top Gear, which is probably the most memorable four-wheeled related thing that I did? John Dodds the Beast. Okay, and uh, there's a little bit murky, John, the history of John's car. I've only got to know John recently over over the internet, actually. He's a nice guy. But, he is. Um, the, the, the basically now, because I think it, they had a fire with it, so I think now the, it, has a, um, it has a Meteor engine in it. 
Um, and this is something that actually I put out in my last Facebook post, uh, just to clarify, really, because you get a lot of people saying, oh, such and such has got a Merlin in his car. Let's be clear here. There's only four cars out of the 32 that I can find in total uh, using either Merlins or Meteors. There's only four cars built ever that actually use a complete supercharged Merlin aero engine out of an aircraft. All the others are either Merlins with the supercharger taken off and usually the direction of rotation changed to that of a Meteor, which then corresponds with the normal direction of rotation of a normal automotive car engine, i.e. Uh, anti-clockwise as you look at the flywheel. Um, Merlin rotates the other way. Um, so all the other 28-odd vehicles have all either used Meteors or, or Merlins with the superchargers taken off. But it's much cooler to say you've got a Merlin in your car, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. People get it, don't they? And, and of course, it is still 27 litres, same born stroke and all that sort of stuff. But to, to me, a Merlin has to be complete. It has to have a supercharger on it. And that's why they, when I embarked on this project, there were a number of sort of things that cannot be moved, um, you know, things that I won't budge on. And one of them was the fact that if I can't make it work with a supercharger and the engine complete, I'm not really interested. And what, and what special difficulties are there in, in supplying that giant supercharged engine with the amount of fuel and air and... Uh... Well, actually, the, the supercharger itself is, causes no particular issues apart from spatial. You, you know, obviously, a two-stage engine is quite a bit longer than a, uh, a Meteor engine, for example. Um, so you've got to allow for the space. But um, we're going to move, remove the charge cooler on ours because it's quite a heavy, bulky item. And we'll, we'll do what they do on the, the sort of racing engines in the U.S. For, for aircraft, which is replace it with a tube and use uh, water methanol injection if the, the boost gets high. Um, but um, the, the biggest problem with Merlins or Meteors is heat and torque. Those are the, those are the two things you have to overcome. Um, and on my very first conversation with Peter Grieve about whether or not this is viable, he said those are the, those are the things you've got to resolve. Um, and, and everyone's gone about it in a sort of similar fashion, and that is to, in terms of torque, that is to overdrive your output. So obviously an aero engine would have an underdriven prop shaft, you know, usually about half crank, crankshaft speed or thereabouts. Um, so actually we want to go the other way. We want at least two times crankshaft speed. So roughly speaking, a Merlin engine puts out uh, around 3,500 foot-pounds of torque. Um, now, to make sense of that, I think a Veyron, Bugatti Veyron, puts out about 1,100 foot-pounds of torque. Um, so you, you need to diminish your torque, but also the Merlin only has a red line of 3,000 RPM, which is causes problems trying to find rear-end gears and everything else uh, further down the line. So what you need to do is overdrive it quite dramatically, and in doing so, so argument's sake, if you double the speed, you half the torque. Uh, and then that allows you to find a, a gearbox that is, you know, either off the shelf or, or doable, and a clutch that's off the shelf rather than some sort of tractor pulling or top fuel type thing, which wouldn't really be practical. No, because the uh, and then heat, you've just got to hide radiators all over the place. And what sort of? I mean, is the Rover SD1? Is that a Merlin engine? Cool. No, that's a, that's a meteor, oh. but um, Charlie's done quite a job on that. I mean, I haven't seen the car close up, but I've heard a lot of people talk about the car. And obviously, in researching my project, I've looked at all these and how these guys have gone about it. Um, he's used, I think, an ERF uh, truck uh, planetary gear to overdrive the engine, because, again, he's got the same problem. He's got the same red line, and he's still got a 27 litres producing a huge amount of torque. 
so he's got to get the, the torque down and the speed up uh, for his output. So he, he, he's done a similar thing. And I, I think the one thing that, that really strikes a chord with that car is the fact that he's managed to get the engine in to a, a vehicle that looks realistic. And, and this is actually where I'd like to think my expertise uh, come into play. I might not be the best engineer in the world, but I'm very good at making stuff look good. So if you, you, you look at my Facebook page and the renders we've done of the car, it was very important to get the, the car wheelbase as short as possible, um, mainly because you can only get tires so big. But even if you could get bigger, once you put a driver in it, he'd look ridiculous. You know, he'd look lost. So the whole package needs to be kept fairly small or as small as possible. Uh, and as I say, that's mainly dictated by the, the tires that are available in a sort of vintage format. What sort of fuel tank arrangements do you need to supply that engine? I mean, what sort of... What's, are we talking about miles per gallon? Or are we talking about gallons per hour of operation? Or how yeah, do you... I mean, you've got to be realistic about what you intend to do with a vehicle, I think. Um, I think that um, if, you, if you're going to talk straight off the bat, a vehicle, build a vehicle uh, using one of these engines that drives on the road, that's, that's quite a tall ask. Because, again, you, you've got eight gallons of oil. The same with a Meteor. You've still got to pack eight gallons of oil somewhere. Uh, you've got a five-gallon header tank. Uh, you've all got to stash this stuff away. And then, you know, you're obviously going to have to carry a huge amount of fuel, which then makes the vehicle bigger. I was never really interested in building something that uh, was, was for the road because if you've got 2,000 horsepower on tap, I don't really see what you're, <laughs> what you're going to do with it on the road. And it was always my dream to sort of get this thing at events like uh, the Festival of Speed. So every time I go, I think what this event needs is a... A car with a Spitfire engine, so... Well, Duncan Pitaway uh, drives the Beast of Turin from the West Country down well, to... Uh, I mean, the car doesn't go very fast. Duncan's car doesn't go very fast, but it's the most popular car there because it spits fire. Because it, it spits flames out of the side and it's an awesome ground-shaking cha- ground force of nature. That's why people love these aero engine cars. I think it goes... Do you not think, Piers? It goes right back to us watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in the audience and you think wow if you could it's almost i think there is a connection between the idea of a flying car and a car that remains you know you should mention that film actually because uh, as a child you know i remember watching it and i was always enthused by the fact that he goes in his shed and he comes out sort of a week later having produced this amazing thing and that's that's the sort of this sort of romantic idyll that, that, that that's how it'll be. It, it probably won't be, but um, yeah, Dick, Dick Van Dyke has a lot to answer for. But, um, <laughs> Dick Van Dyke does have a lot to answer for. <laughs> Still with us, isn't he? He's like a hundred and three or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, as far as Duncan's car is concerned, I mean, he, for sure that that is um, a good case in point because it, it it really does stir your stuff. And I realised fairly early on. That if I can get the aesthetic right of this, and people are aware that the engine in this has seen more service, um, it is out of a Spitfire, y- you know, you almost can't fail um, I- in some respects. You know, it's not like you have to uh, design something that has to deliver a certain lap time. It's got to make a lot of noise and fry some rubber and send people home with a smile on their face. That's what it's really about. And, and, and a road-going vehicle, okay, yeah, you could do that with that, but it's not necessary. It's, it's oh, so you won't, you won't make it road legal, no? 
No, I mean, it, that may be something that we'll look into down the line, because the business model dictates that we'd have to build other cars anyway, and I have got a German client interested in one, but he, he wants the first one, and he wants it road going, which is, you know, that's quite a leap. Can uh, you not just incorporate... It has 20 gallons of fuel stored in the tail, yeah. uh, together with some additional radiators, and, um, you know, that'll be enough to, to, do your, to do your hill climbs or demo runs. Yeah, I was going to say, can you not incorporate part of the chassis from an existing vehicle and then make it road legal that way, which is what a lot of hot rod builders would, would yeah, do back can, in the day? Yeah, they can, but I, I looked at sort of, um, you know, perhaps using a ladder chassis or something, but I, I realised fairly early on that actually to do this, in my opinion, I mean, I don't mean to criticise anybody else's vehicles that they build, because getting any, anyone that's got one of these vehicles to sort of fruition and completion is, is one hell of a task and deserves a tip of the hat for sure. But I, I felt that they were all sort of uh, designed with what was available. Um, so, you know, I realised fairly early on, this is either go big or go home. Um, so it was a space frame chassis, which was a thing in sort of 1944, because I don't want to stick loads of modern stuff on it that would look incongruous. So it has to look period, but a, 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 um, a tubular chassis was a thing back in sort of 1950. Um, so that's the way we're going to go, because it, it will perform a lot better and it's much, much more efficient in terms of space. Yeah, I mean, I when I drove the Beast um, on the telly, uh, Paul, John's son, was... was uh, John was out in Spain, where I believe he lives now. And um, he, I interviewed Paul and I said to him, Paul was rattling off the list of components that were in the car. And it was kind of a... It was just a compilation of... of the British car industry's sort of, you know, finest moments to a degree. When we got to the brakes, I said, brakes, and he said, and don't forget this, he said, Austin Westminster. There was a slight pause, and I said, Paul, the brakes in an Austin Westminster don't even stop an Austin Westminster particularly well. <laughs> yeah, that sounds quite perturbing, actually. Well, Jay Leno tells that story about, what is it called, La Bestione, his, his, his car, and he said... Um, it was built in the UK. No, I'm getting mixed up. Not the Bestione. Pissed off Pete, I think it's called the one that the one that he has said has a Merlin engine. Mm. And who are we to contradict the world's leading car enthusiast and a great bloke from all accounts? I've never met him. Wish I had. He's got the best car and motorcycle collection in the world, in my opinion, and seems mm. to be a thoroughly nice bloke. But that car was built in the UK, and he said with a Jaguar gearbox. And, of course, he tells a story that the first time he drove it, he said as soon as he put his foot down, he just said, ping, ting, ding, like yeah, that. I mean, and early, early on, I realised that um, the gearbox was... You see, for me, as I say, there were some, some points on it that had to be, uh, and I wouldn't budge on. So one of those was that you'd have to have a period, a, a period feel of a, of a sort of uh, just post-war uh, British racing car, something like an ERA on steroids, if yeah. you like. Well, an ERA has a manual gearbox. Um, so a TH400 turbo box, you know, from the US, isn't going to cut it as far as I'm concerned. That's too um, easy. It's 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 Because everybody say that when they, oh, yeah, just put a big Yankee automatic transmission in it. Yeah, you could, but uh, as I say, I, I just, oh, just, yeah, no. As no, far as I'm concerned. no. I mean, I get why people have done it, you know, because they say, because <laughs> I now realise that I am going to have to make a bespoke gearbox. So we're talking to a company... Uh, in California, actually, Chris Weissman, uh, who's prepared to make a three-speed manual gearbox tough enough to, to do the job and cope with the reverse rotation issues. 
Um, but it's funny you should mention the breaks, actually, because it's amazing the adventures you sort of get led on, really, with these uh, research projects. And that, that I finally I agonised over what breaks to, to use for some time. I thought, well, do we use sort of Bentley hubs? Uh, well, we're using Bentley hubs and wheel centres, but um, are we going to use Bentley, um, you know, drum brakes and perhaps modify them, make them look a little bit more aesthetic, like a, an Auto Union or a W125 or something? Um, but at the end of the day, they're still crap. You know, they don't really <laughs> work that well. So I thought, well, what about the first generation of uh, hydraulic brakes? They came around in the sort of very late 40s on BRM V16, for example, the, the, the first generation of Girlings. What, hydro uh, oh, hydraulic disc brakes? or hydro hydraulic, hydraulic disc brakes, yeah. as we know them today. So I thought, well, okay, plus the fact that Napier Railton does use disc brakes, Dunlop uh, rear disc brakes, uh, which were fitted many years afterwards for parachute testing. Um, so I thought, well, okay, um, there's a bit of research on that. And then while we were at Festival of Speed, I obviously came across the new recreated uh, V16. I thought, well, that's great. They must be recreating calipers. But uh, Rob Hall being Rob Hall is quite hard work sometimes, and he, he wasn't prepared to let the, the data go, um, even just the external uh, data uh, of the caliper rather than the internal so he can protect his IP. He wasn't prepared to let that go uh, very easily. So I thought, well, okay, because uh, I need to measure them up and, and, and draw them up in 3D to introduce them into my drawing to see, you know, what fits and what doesn't. Um, so I got back to this uh, a good friend of mine who works a lot with historic motorsport and said, look, you know, anybody else got a BRMV16, which is a pretty stupid question, really, because it's a very, very short list of people. He said, yeah, I've, I found you one. I've, I've got you an intro. Go, go and see Ted. So off we go to see Ted, uh, who works on... Um, uh, a number of cars for his um, his employer, um, and uh, off we go. And I, I wasn't actually at this point aware of uh, who Ted worked for until we were sort of halfway there, and we got the directions and everything. We show up at uh, Biggin Hill, and he blow me down. He, he works for Bernie Eccleston. So we were looking at uh, Bernie's uh, V16 and measured all the calipers and everything else, and Ted was very gracious. He showed us through the rest of the car collection, which I can uh, reliably ensure you is quite some collection. Oh, we'd say it's a rival that of Mr. J. Leno, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. I mean, uh, you know, obviously each one has got a slightly different taste, but mm. um, sadly we didn't see the Auto Union or the W125 uh, while we were at Burnish, but we did see pretty much everything else. And obviously what we needed to see, which is the BRM, and it had all its clothes off as well, which was great, because it, it gave you a lot of aesthetic cues as to how things were done in 1949, you know, so it was uh, a very, very worthwhile day out. How many hours to build a car like the one that you're proposing, Piers, and how much how much money to build a car like that? Well, D Don't uh, do it wheeler-dealers either. I can't really tell how much it's going to cost, but obviously I have to get a business model together, which is sort of fairly close on the horizon yeah. uh, as to what it's going to cost, but um, I... I you know, modifying these and, and using these engines for non-airworthy use isn't actually as an expensive exercise as you may initially think if you've got most or all the parts, which we have now. Um, you know, it's not like a sort of Cosworth DFE rebuild where you're going to blink and cost yourself £100,000. But, of course, if you want an airworthy Merlin, that's a completely different kettle of fish. Um, but, uh, you know, a space frame chassis bespoke is obviously going to be fairly expensive and a body's going to be fairly expensive. Um, so, uh, if I took a stab at sort of £750,000, I think you'd be somewhere near. Wow. But, um, you know, and you, you're going to be a couple of years, even if we had all the money and all the mm. design and everything ready tomorrow, uh, which we're not far away from, but we're, we're not there yet. It is something, I mean, we're grown men. 
<laughs> we talked about how long ago it was that you painted that crash helmet for me. Um, it's been a long time. But this is this idea of yours, this, this obsession, this dream of yours, it seems, and I do mean this in the nicest way, it's like a schoolboy fantasy, isn't it? It is exactly that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, go- I'm not going to um, try and sort of attach any highbrow thing to it. You know, it is exactly that. It, you know, and I think there is a boy in all of us, and, uh, you know, whilst we're forced to grow up, you know, on many levels as we grow older, children, you know, divorce and God knows what else we, we all sort of have to deal with in life, um, you know, health issues, everything else, it's, it's great to hark back to something that's kind of unfiltered. You know, and I remember my enthusiasm about a Spitfire. I remember my enthusiasm about my father's racing cars when I was a child. Um, you know, and it, it is sort of a, a culmination of all those things. Um, but at the same time, I, I realized that the whole project has to have something for the greater good, uh, which, again, was one of the unmovable sort of um, pillars of the whole project. And that was that, you know, if we can get this thing off the ground, it's my intention to sort of get the, the car running. And that's why it had to have two seats. It has to have a charitable element so if somebody wants a ride in it they can have a ride in it but they have to make a donation to charity yeah so if people want to find out more and i'm sure many people will about what you're doing and where you're up to with it how can they how can they find that out please where can they find that well obviously we have a uh, just a facebook page at the moment it was almost a sort of toe dipping in my um, from, from my point of view, really, just to see sort of what feedback we got. And I was absolutely astounded at the enthusiasm that we, we got back from it. Sort of from a standing start, we had sort of 100 and, uh, over 100,000 views of the Facebook page in a, in a fortnight. Um, so you, you can find it um, at the Fighter Ace Project uh, on Facebook. And then uh, there's a little bit of information on there. I'm kind of drip-feeding it out, um, um, you know, as we go. Uh, but, um, you know, it gives a grounding of what the project's for, and uh, certainly, you know, what most people probably wondering listening to this is, what on earth does this thing look like? Um, well, you know, if you, if, you, if you go online and have a look at that, you, you'll see, and I sincerely hope you'll agree with me and think it looks right. It looks, it does justice to the engine. Yeah, and that's, that's no easy task, is it? Because it is, it's legendary, I mean, you know, in Arthurian legend, they said that Merlin would come and save us, us, us Britons, in our time of greatest need. And the Merlin did come and save us in our time of greatest need, didn't it? That's actually yeah, what I mean, happened. It's strange. Obviously, the, the, the engine was named after a, a bird of prey, but, uh, yeah, it, it, um, it, it did. And, and, you know, some would argue it is the greatest piston engine of all time. And if you look at its construction uh, and its quality of build, you've got to bear in mind this thing was built in a hurry in 1944. You know, it's not some beautifully finished thing. It's it's a machine of war. It's built to do a job, mm. and probably with a very short life expectancy. And obviously, before the age of computer design and everything else, it has its idiosyncrasies. Um, you know, there were aspects on other engines built during the war that were better, but none were placed like the Merlin to do what it did. Um, and, it, you know, perhaps if you take into consideration its its influence on world history it is the greatest piston engine of all time well you'll get no argument for me on that so just one more time Piers it's mm-hmm. um, Fighter Ace Project or sorry what was yeah, that the Fighter Ace Project That's on right. Facebook um, yeah. if, if you can find that uh, that'll be fantastic have a look and let me know uh, in the comments well great to talk to you and more power to you with, with, with your project thank you thank thanks you. Piers
Mike, that's it, mate. Thank you very much. It was really great to talk to you. Um, you know, I think you're right. I think the Merlin is the greatest piston engine of all time. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's an admirable project. And, and I've learnt quite a bit there about uh, aero engine cars from you, including the fact that I never really drove one. But never mind. <laughs> yeah, sadly, um, neither have I yet. Maybe I'll get a, get to drive it and scare myself after death. All right. Um, so, um, are you going to send me some uh, yeah. links from what have you still? Yeah, we'll send you the links so that uh, me and Paul, probably the producer, so that you can let people know through your Facebook page and whatever when it's going to be on and where they can listen to it. And then we publicise it and we put it out and it goes out on every format. It goes out on, I, on iTunes and Anchor FM and Spotify and all okay. of the places that people would expect to find podcasts. And it goes out to a really weird round the world audience of where, as well in places like Russia and Vietnam, and <laughs> it's so odd. I mean, Fantastic. You yeah. never know. You never know. You know, you've got to stick it out there to get some luck with it. Oh, absolutely, mate. It's like, with a project like this, you're going to get knockback after knockback after knockback, and you've got, mm. to, you've got to follow it through, and you've got to believe in it, and you've got to be committed, and you, you seem to be absolutely all those things are very super knowledgeable about the subject, wow. so that's six, great. Six years in, yeah. Well, yeah, you would be. Oh, mate, I know people sort of in television and film, and they've got like, passion projects that are 10, 15, 20 years of just David Lancaster, an old colleague of mine from sort of Motors, he went for Motorcycle International, he's, yeah. just, he's just finished a documentary about Vincent Motorcycles, yeah. and he's been nine years at that, ten years. Yeah. And in the end, Jay Leno's in it, and Paul Simonon from The Clash is in it, and yeah. Ewan, Ewan McGregor narrates it, and it's, you know, it's all great in it's the as end. As it could have been by the sounds of it. But it still took an enormous amount of his life, you know, like, yeah. not just time, yeah. his life, because well, you I could mean, be I doing other I've things. I've that long in front of a computer, oh, I've got to keep going now, I've, I've, you know, I've got to keep going. Absolutely. That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Social media doesn't let us tell you about it. You need to spread the word about Speed Shop. Tell people how good it is, how entertaining it is, and how fantastic I am. See you back here next Wednesday.